it's not that we are the pain. We are carrying pain, but we are not the trauma that has happened to us. We carry it. What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Priori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the basement yard, Vine, the Priori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Danny LoPriori, and today I am joined by certified internal family systems therapist. We're going to have to learn what that is because I don't know. <laughs> and a graduate of the certificate program in trauma studies at Institute for Psychoanalysis. I love that word so much, but I have to break it up because it's like a tongue twister for me. And she's also an author of the book, The Pain We Carry, which we'll talk about. But I want to get right into it. You are Puerto Rican. <laughs> and as yes. where's your family from Puerto Rico? So my mom's side of the family is from Rio Pedra and Carolina, but now live mostly in Canovanas. And then on my father's side of the family, we're from Juana Diaz and Santa Isabel. So like uh, the South. Yes. What about your family? Caguas. Cagua. Yeah. Yes. yeah. See, see yes. you, you know how to speak Spanish. I don't. My mom is fluent. So menos. Yeah. You speak well? I would say like 80%. I feel like I can't speak any language fluently. So yeah, I, yeah I can barely speak English. Um, <laughs> I'm just getting by. I would say like if I put a number on it, it would be like 80%. 80% fluent in Spanish. Oh, well, there are things that I, under, I understand most of it, but to speak is sometimes like to conjugate the words. I'm like, I can get lost. So I get mixed up when, so my mom was fluent in Spanish. But she didn't teach us because she like wanted us to be American. She dealt with like a lot of racism growing up. Yeah, which so, is a, the story of a lot of folks of the diaspora. Yeah. So they were like, "I want you to be American," in a sense. And then like I asked her, I'm like, "You should have like really taught us." It's one of the things like I ride her the most for. Like I'd be so much cooler if I could speak Spanish. <laughs> and then I forget that I could learn it if I want to. <laughs> that part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's easily obtainable if you just, you know, go to a couple classes and learn how to speak Spanish. The reason I wanted to talk about, you know, us sharing uh, our Puerto Rican heritage is uh, you specialize in pretty much like trauma of people of color, right? Yeah. Yeah. What kind of drew you to that? And obviously, I'm sure living with it yourself is always like a, a constant motivator, right? Like we, we, we're, we're yep. attracted to things that we grew up in and grew up seeing and want yep. to make differences, difference in. But when you're going to school, I'm sure for 15 years, you kind of want to like want to go like, oh, this job pays more if I do this field or this job has less hours. If I do this, I could do that. So what really made you want that to be, you know, kind of your mission in life? Yeah, I appreciate that question because I think it was a both. It kind of just happens. And also. I chose it at the same time. I think back to my internship. I did my master's in Hawaii and a lot of folks there, the majority are folks of color, folks of the global majority, right? Pretty cool place. (laughs) Really beautiful place. (laughs) Not a bad thing. So you're on the right track. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And there's a history about, you know, Puerto Ricans moving to Hawaii too, which I learned out there. I hadn't done that before. And so, you know, I just really 
noticed the, I would say the difference between what I was being taught, you know, on an academic level, which is, you know, very white. And it feels like when you go to grad school, when you go to school, you kind of have to unlearn what you learn in school after that. Right. Because I noticed like even in my grad program, I did my master's in marriage and family therapy. There were things that I was like, this doesn't really fit. And and what about, you know, what about larger systems? And everything is, when you go to school, everything is like you learn how to diagnose or like you see, you go to your, you know, diagnostic statistical manual, the DSM, and you just like pick a number or code. And that's what this person has. Oh, they have anxiety. Go, you know, like if they have anxiety disorder, that's what that means. If they have depression, they have you know, major depressive disorder and, and everything is really about at least how I experienced it and how I've lived it has been just so like you slap labels on people. And I understand that also sometimes labels can be freeing for people because it can also feel like, yes, now I know what's happening with me, but I, I learned a lot of that. And so when I started, when I was, you know, in my internship and then graduated and was in, I worked in community health for several years and I was the, the people that I were that I was seeing was predominantly people of color, black and brown and some indigenous folks. But I began to see like, well, let me see. Even my white supervisors who were supervising me at the time, the advice, the suggestions that they were giving me really didn't entirely align right. with the people that I was serving. And so then it became like my piece comes in as someone who grew up in the projects in the Lower East Side, right? Before it's gentrification and then moving to the or Bronx. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I moved to the Bronx, Pelham Parkway, when my parents separated. It felt like I was exposed to a lot of seeing the struggle that I didn't see in other, in, in more dominant white communities. I was seeing yeah. the struggle in Black and Brown folks that I was seeing them hustle. I was seeing the pain. I was seeing like the pathologizing of them as well. I was seeing how police would also circulate the projects a lot more. I would see black and brown folks getting arrested more. Like I would just see all of this and I didn't know how to name it at the time. I didn't know the understanding of it at the time, but I was seeing a lot of just pathologizing. I was seeing a lot of the pathologizing of like folks that were you know, whether in gangs and, and just folks of trauma in general, just yeah. in all the ways. And so I really became passionate about wanting to talk about that more. Just this kind of stay in that realm. So like, did anyone like ever advise you to like not go into that field? I don't have a, a memory of someone vividly saying don't, but I think more of maybe not understanding what I do. Also, what I think I've gotten more of is maybe... For part of my family, the first to get a college degree. And so I think with that, and even among some older friends, and so I think I think among that was my experience of you're better than us. You think you're better than us. Mm. And so that kind of like rupture that happens. Oh, you read all the psych books. And so now you think you're better than us. You know, when you're calling out intergenerational trauma, it's like, no, this is how it's always been done. This is how it needs to be. This is how you have to do it. And like, why do you think you're better than us? Why do you want to do it the white way? That's what it is. Yeah. It's like everyone's like, oh, Natalie thinks she's smart now and shit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Natalie thinks she knows all the fucking answers. Right. Do your friends and family ask you to like psychoanalyze them sometimes? <laughs> when I was in grad school, I was eager to do it. 
yeah, yeah. I was eager to do it. And then I, I had a therapist at the time that said, Natalie, <laughs> we train, like, understand, like, you are trained to recognize issues, right? But he had said, one point if you recognize the issue, two points if you recognize the issue and keep it to yourself and like, shut the fuck up because you don't have to tell people, you know, what, you know, what you hear is the struggle. Because I think in the beginning, I was more eager to be like, to, to say like, oh, well, I wonder, like, could it be this and all of that. Now, I think folks really, they don't come to me for like, help me with this issue. It's more of like, do you know anyone that does family counseling? Do you know anyone like for referrals? And I'm totally open to that. I love those questions. I love those asks. Yeah, no, that's good. Because you want to know what it is. It's like, you know, if you're out somewhere and your ankle hurts and you have a friend who's like kind of a doctor and you're kind of just like picking their brain, it's like, you got to realize these people are off of work sometimes, you know? Right. Um, But when you got into the field, is it hard for you? Because you were talking about one point and the two points. Is it hard for you not to like psychoanalyze people? I think it comes naturally to feel, I think energetically, it's not even that it's happening here anymore. Like it happens, like I'm not meeting with people and saying, hmm, <laughs> right? right, right, right. But like, let's say if some, like, I'm just, I am clairsentient. I pick up on people's energy. It's just what it is. So I can tell, are we going to vibe or are we not going to vibe? And I can tell that pretty quickly. Is there something in me that says pause with this person or not? Hmm. But now I've been doing this for almost 15 years. And now I'm kind of, I'm kind of like, if I'm talking to someone, I'm not getting paid to like, you know, I'm not getting paid. I don't want to offer free labor to that. So I'm kind of, I think I've learned like when I'm with my friends, it's just like, we're vibing like more on a soul heart level. And I really don't give a fuck of like the other stuff. Well, you have stuff going on too. You, you know, people forget that's the thing. Right. Right. And then I'm a human. And then I'm a human too. I feel just like everybody else. And sometimes even more deeply. Well, no, absolutely. Because, you know, you kind of know. Um, so like if life's an onion, you have a few more layers peeled back because, you know, you know, the ins and outs better than, you know, I would say about 99% of the population. But, you know, yeah. if, you go, if you go into a certain situation, right, in terms of your work, do you ever find it kind of catch yourself thinking like the evolution of therapy is changing because like more people that are going into therapy are like people who have suffered with certain kind of trauma and and are able to be like more transparent about it. Not saying that people that are in, uh, you know, in the psychoanalyst world now aren't passionate about what they do, but now it's like more of like an actual close closeness trying to get into the field and help people within the field. Yeah. I'm really glad for this shift because I could not, be with a therapist that's just gonna do mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i need reactions yeah, talk some shit. <laughs> yeah like validate me and then like call me in when i need it right don't just this kind of blank slate thing it just doesn't work for me so i am appreciative that it is moving in more of a direction where we can embrace our humanity because we've been taught that professionalism is supposed to look like something where we're, we just know the answers and we're just like these wa- this wise counsel, which is wonderful. And could we stop and say, you know, I don't know the answer to yeah. that. Like, yeah. I don't That's, know. I always said the older I got, the more comfortable I got with saying, I don't know. Yeah. And it's kind of been, uh, I feel for all people, if they kind of got into a habit of saying, Listen, that's very interesting, but I don't know. 
I don't know yeah. about it instead of just everybody's opinion just has to come out of their mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I've saved myself some stress, time, money, patience, emotional bandwidth. When I say just, I don't know the answer. If more right. people were just willing to say they don't know the answer, we'd be in a lot better. And, and that's where fights start a lot of the time. Or people thinking they know the answers to things, but you know, I feel the the older I get, the more I'm just willing to admit I don't know shit. Yeah, me too. And that is so true. And it's like that saying that says, "The more that you read, the more that you learn, the more questions that you have." Mm-hmm. I don't know all of the answers, so when people come to me and I just don't know the answers, I will let them know. In the same way that as a human being that does therapy, if there is something that you know someone's saying and I fucked up about something, I'm gonna say, "Oh, damn." Like I noticed I said this and I want to know how that landed on you because it didn't feel good when I said it and I recognized I made a mistake and I'm really sorry about that. And can we talk about how that impacted you, right? That we could also say when we made a mistake that we could also have, have that hold ourselves. Still. <laughs> Where are you in that journey? Where are you in that journey, Danny? I would say if I'm answering honestly, I would say that I've progressed in that field if we're going like out of a hundred percent, I would say like I'm around 45, like I've downloaded 45% of it. Now, now compared to the grand scheme, it's not very, you know, it's not fully developed, but you know, starting at zero and getting the 45%, I try not to beat myself up too Mm -hmm. much when I get into that kind of that, that frame of thinking, because what I learned early in therapy for me, just personally, and I would love your feedback on this, is a lot of it was trauma dumping, which I love. Don't get me wrong. Mm. I love trauma dumping. But, you know, it kind of was going towards an area where I'm only just like expressing myself with this person, you know, my therapist and my psychiatrist. But I was never really addressing like the issues with the people that I had the problems with. So Mm. a lot of it in the beginning is I had a lot of these self breakthroughs. But once I kind of learned to share them with other people and the people that, you know, maybe necessarily I've had communication errors with before, or, you know, I've had, you know, relationships with that didn't go where we thought they would go, whether it be friendships or, you know, even family relationships, learning to kind of address things was tough for me. I was always a kind of put mm-hmm. it on later kind of guy, like, oh, I'll deal with it later. I'll text them later. And it became like a, a thing that could have just been handled with like a short conversation. My relationship with my parents now is better than it ever has been because of the communication side. Mm. You know, because I think Mm. it's easy to go into therapy and shit on your parents. Like, who doesn't want to do Mm -hmm. that? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that's it's very hard because I have my own feelings, and our feelings are influenced by other people. I would say a large amount of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, something, something had to happen or you touch on trauma a lot in what you do. I'm sure you see a lot of it, but for me, the 45% out of a hundred is like a huge moral victory. Yeah. Being yeah. Able to take accountability for some of my actions and the way that I react to things instead yeah. of blaming, this is why I'm like this. That's not what I asked. Right. The question is, is why are you doing that? You don't need to be doing that that way. So I've been a little more self uh, mm. self aware of how I react to things. I'm an emotional guy. I, ca- I, can't. Mm-hmm. I can't. You know, when you grow up seeing people that are emotional and expressing themselves in kind of outlandish, loud ways, mm-hmm. you're going to be outlandish and loud. It's just how of it course. is. You know, of the course. loudest the loudest voice rules the room. 
Right. Right. That's like kind of how it was for me. But like, you know, I tell people all the time and I'm sure you have to tell your patients all the time. Therapy is like more homework than it is being in the office. Oh, yeah. It is really hard. And that's why a lot of people don't go. And I get that. Yeah, they don't, they don't understand. <laughs> I get that. Because you actually have to, you actually have to do work when oh, you're in yeah. therapy. You actually have to do work. You know, and Danny, and I'm appreciating you being just raw and honest and appreciating your 45%. Because even in that, right? Like I, I was taught this from a peer a long time ago, and it just feels important to share here. I think of like the baseline, right? I'm using my little finger over here. I think about this is like the baseline, what we know, unhealed, not doing our work. 45% is here. People think you have to all of a sudden jump up to be over here. But real change is like this. You start like even over here, the smallest step. And then over time, it starts happening. And this is the change that happens over time, right? It multiplies. And so it is about unlearning. It is about learning and seeing and witnessing yourself and how you are in relationship to other people. And that takes so much time. It does. It does. Most people that meet me, they would say, oh, like he's super nice and like he's great. But like when you're an asshole about certain things, you got to kind of untrain yourself to not be an asshole. Yeah, so it's kind of hard. So true. And people experience thing that you could be like a dick. Mm-hmm. Uh, to people around you that you love is is not a great experience. But I'm happy that like I've gone through it enough to realize that other people in my life have like feelings. Mm-hmm. No, we, we kind of have to be a little more caring about how we treat other people and you know how we show attention to people, right? Yeah, right. And the same is true for therapists because people will see us and like I'll speak for myself. People will see me and and I'm pretty calm. I have pretty calm energy. But then people mistake that for like the fact that I can't be a dick. I could be a total dick. Yeah, yeah. I have been a total dick. So it's also me saying, damn, I wasn't really proud of this moment. And I really need to take accountability for myself. I had a conversation with a friend of mine, lifelong friend. I've I've known him for 25 years. We were talking and I literally was like, do you see like any of the guys anymore? And he was like, yeah, like everyone, like once a month, maybe. And I just was like, are we just shitty friends or are we, or are we just, uh, <laughs> are we all shitty friends or are we just like getting old? You know, like mm. uh, in our lives are going. So like, those are questions that I would never ask before like the 45% of, uh, mm. you know what I mean? So now it's like, I'm willing to take accountability of like, Maybe I was a shitty friend. Maybe I was a shitty partner, a shitty partner in this argument that we had. Or, you know, maybe I was a shitty son. You could be a shitty son sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we want to trauma dump and blame all of our problems on a lot of people. And don't get me wrong. Like I said, nothing I love more than blaming somebody else for something that is probably my fault. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's taking, taking the accountability is the hardest. One of the hardest things, I think, for the human mind to like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think part of the reason why, and certainly I I don't have this all figured out, but I think part of the reason why is that sometimes when we take accountability for that, we feel shame. Oh, yeah. And we we don't want to feel shame. (laughs) We don't want to feel shame. And so if we don't take accountability for it, then we can avoid that responsibility, that accountability. And we then can like dodge the shame. But if we instead, just owned that we feel shame and see that shame is not dangerous to us, that we could actually understand like, well, what's, what's that about? There's healing there. There's more information for us there, but 
it's hard work. We have to get uncomfortable. I feel like if you do it with the right people, the people that matter to mm-hmm. your life, they'll be yes. receptive to yeah. it. Yeah, 100%. If you come to them and be like, hey, listen, man, like, sorry, like I haven't reached out as much. Or people that you've gone through things in life and that you genuinely care about. It's not that you don't care yeah. about. It's just, right. you know, sometimes in life, shit gets confusing. People grow apart and it becomes, you know, relationships can get severed just from not talking. Right. And now you're doing all this catch up of trying to be like, where did things go wrong and all of this stuff? And that's why I've really tried to delete well you statements. And by well you statements, I'm sure you're aware of is well you. Well you (laughs) said this, and that's why I reacted like this. I've been trying to get rid of those and saying, like, well, you haven't texted me, you haven't called mommy, you haven't taken the dogs out. I'm trying to get rid of those statements in my life. Because mm. something empowering about accountability. And I think mm. it, it's a pillar for your future to be like, listen, more people will be willing to help people if they admit they fuck up. Mm-hmm. Whether it's at work, whether it's in relationships, if you come to somebody and you're transparent and you know, you're like, hey, listen, I fucked up. I didn't do this thing right. All right, now we can fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're just going to be constantly blaming each other, every everything is, you know. People are combustible. Mm-hmm. We're, all mm-hmm. just, we're all just volcanoes. And to your point, right? Like if we get comfortable with taking accountability for when we fuck up, then we open up space for us to be able to hold and have compassion for someone else when they fuck up. Oh, right? yeah. When our people, when our friends are like, no, forget it. Like, like screw you. I would wonder how much of this is also their struggle with forgiving themselves, their struggle with holding their accountability or compassion for like when they mess up, right? Right. Because it opens up more compassion within us when we can own our stuff. Yeah. And we can hold other people that way. Like you said, it's just a really hard thing. It seems simple, but it's just extremely difficult. We don't know how people are going to internalize things. It's very scary when you meet someone who you love, but there's some basic differences and fundamentals, why people react to certain things a certain way, you know, just to switch it up a little bit. I grew up in a mixed family. At times it could have been rough. I grew up with some identity issues. I moved to like a town that was like all white kids. And they kind of like said some mean things to me, you know? Mm -hmm. So I want to talk to you about internalized racism. How would you categorize and how would you define internalized racism? Yeah, I understand internalized racism to be the messages that we internalize about ourselves regarding race mm. from, I see it as a funnel. I see it as a funnel. So I think it starts first with the messages that we hear systemically, right? The laws, all the laws, systems that just kind of create the ideology of race, the construct of race, also for oppression, ideological oppression that then pours into institutional racism. Uh-huh which is what we experience when we go to school, right? It's the revisionist histories that we're taught. It's uh, all the ways that, you know, and I, and I talk about this in my book and others have spoken about it too, the school to prison pipeline that a lot of black and brown folks experience. So this is what we experience on an institutional level, which then pours into interpersonal racism. So this is racism that happens in our community and what you were naming earlier about just growing up in the neighborhoods that were white and even just, you know, Puerto Rican Italian, there's also racism there that can happen that happens. 
racism that happens in community, colorism, right? That all happens on a very interpersonal, communal level, which then pours into how we see ourselves, which pours into then the messages, again, from that funnel, the messages that we have heard, the experiences that we've had in school and how we have been taught, how just all of our experiences there, our communities and all the ways that we experience colorism and also have perpetuated colorism, right? Depending on the color of our skin and then how that has impacted us, all the ways that we were othered, all the ways that we were told we weren't enough. That is how I believe and how I see internalized racism happens. Obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, but it has a good balance of kind of the nature versus nurture of racism. So the reason I'm smiling like that too is because I've had a bunch of white kids call me spick. I've been through there. You know what I mean? I laugh it off now, but in the moment when you're a kid, you might have moments where you're like, dude, my spick. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I'm not Mexican. Like how many times do I have to tell them I'm not Mexican? Yeah. It's so true. Right. They even turn us against each other. Yeah. They're just like, I'm not some fucking Mexican. I'm Puerto Rican. Right. So now it's like right. I'm hating Mexicans because right. I don't want to be Mexican. Like, you know, right. it becomes like this cycle where I kind of have to hate other other Hispanic and Spanish yeah. ethnicities. So, like, you know, it's really strange that, like, I had to defend, like, you know, that I wasn't Mexican as a kid. Mexican people yeah. are right. But in the moment, yeah. I'm like, these people aren't recognizing me for what I am. So now I'm just going to be mean to Mexicans now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just can't figure it out. That's why I'm defending myself, yep. fighting for my life. If it feels yep. like from what I know of my lineage and my background, there wasn't a lot of oppression, you know, like there was oppression, but you know, my grandparents were immigrants, you know, like they dealt with that type of oppression. But, you know, if you really think about black people, they had to deal with slavery and there's science to the trauma, right? And I'm a Christian man, but I believe in science wholeheartedly. So when it comes down to it, it's, you know, these people have family members who were slaves. Mm -hmm. Like my mom, like grew up on East Tremont and like, you know, got called some names every once in a while. And, you know, her friends, her brother got in some fights and whatever. But I don't know how far back I would have to go back to find any kind of slave in my personal lineage. Mm -hmm. Then there's just generational trauma, which is just outrageous. And now when you take people, now you take racism, right? And you blend it with generational trauma. It's mm -hmm. not really a recipe for success if you really think about it. Yeah. And, and when you think about where did that generational trauma come from, at least how I see it, it leads like one of two ways or both ways, which is historical trauma, which is what you're naming, right? When folks, when, when Black folks were enslaved other type of historical trauma, colonization, right? War, famine, genocide, like these, yes. these are pieces of historical trauma that really is the genesis of intergenerational trauma. It is part of what has created the dynamics that continue to pass down. And then there's also the larger cultural piece from that funnel that I was sharing. Like there is the, well, if you grow up in systems that are oppressive, that, you know, if you grow up in poverty, and you're, you're pathologized for being poor and it's because you're just not working hard enough. That does something to the soul. And that yeah. continues to be passed down. Or, or if you have to work three jobs and you're not able to be there for your children, it's not because you don't want to be. It's because like you're trying to struggle in you know this capitalist world where you're trying to make ends meet to help your family. And that means you can't be at your kid's school place. That means that 
you can't be at parent teacher conference, <laughs> you know, like you, you skip and you miss out on so much, not because you necessarily want to, but because that's what you have to do living in the system that we live in, in order to survive. And it's also like a double-edged sword, right? To put it in layman's terms, everybody at some point, no matter what color or race or creed or whatever, everybody was trying to get about the hood at one point, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you know, you want to get to this better life, right? So now you start marginalizing people, you have kind of like fixed income housing, and then, you know, we're going to put everybody here and these people that make a certain amount of money are going to live here and blah, 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 blah. But then it's like, it returns back. So it's, I had like multiple friends who were like Jewish, well-off black nannies. Like that's who you saw at the football games. That's who you saw at the practice, picking them up from school, you know? So it's like, I wonder if this guy like doesn't like his parents. He mm-hmm. And he was well off. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, like this guy calls his his mom by his, her first name. Like as much as that's like a like a joke amongst us, crazy disrespectful in the time. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. whatever really people's relationships with their parents are. All I know is that if I call my mom by her first name, she's throwing me through the window. So that's mm-hmm. there's like a fundamental kind of like lack of respect. So it's like even being successful now, it's going to like heed some type of like there's a negative side to everything that we want to do because really, we try to do we try to do what's best for people in our families. And it's if people have to understand, like there's head starts mm-hmm. that people have, you know, yeah. And I don't right. think that necessarily all people should feel bad about them. It's like, you know, if right. you're born into you're born into a rich family, yeah, you're gonna have to use, yeah. you're gonna have to use what you have to do because the people in your neighborhood are doing the same thing. So it's kind of like keeping up with the Joneses everywhere. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. look at people, like you said, it's it's like it's either like statistically in bad neighborhoods, it's either yeah, the kids that get out of there, or it's this way. There's like no middle ground. Yeah, and that's the scary. Yeah. That's the scary part about the just the way that you know our country was just built on like racist shit. It's just kind of weird. Yeah. We don't want to talk about it, but we're talking about accountability. It's like, you know, I would love for a president to come out and just be like, "Yo, like shit was kind of fucked up. Like our bad." Yeah, right. And do something. Will. No, and it's yeah, because I mean, this is a this system isn't designed to serve the folks that are most marginalized, it just isn't, right? So it, it really is about just wiping the whole system out and then creating a new. And to your point, right, not folks that are that are born into a very rich and wealthy families, there's nothing, they didn't choose that, right? Like they're not at fault for that. And also, right, like how do they, as you're growing, then how do you use your power and privilege to help other people? Because I think a lot of the situation is that folks have their power and their privilege. And then they're, you know, we live in a very individualist society. And so they're like, me, 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 me. And, you know, through all the rest. And then there are people that are like super hungry on the other side, right? We have billionaires and then we have people that are starving. We have, it's so much of that. And so how do we bring it back? How do we redistribute wealth? How do we circulate the money so that we can really, if we have power and privilege, if I have some power and privilege, like how do I use my power and privilege to help other people that have less power and privilege than I do. It's hard. And it's like, it's like the touch back on like, you know, how like kids call me like Mexican and stuff, right? You mm-hmm. even have like infighting even like between like Puerto Ricans. I'm of Taino descent. So my mm-hmm. mom is like this and straight hair or whatever. And then I'm sure for you, people think you were probably just some white chick most of the time. 
<laughs> people, they maybe thought a little bit of that. But then when I opened my mouth, they were like, oh, you must be, because everyone in New York is either like Puerto Rican or Dominican, right? So they're like either one That's of about them. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even to that point, that what you're speaking to is the anti-Blackness and even the Puerto Rico community, right? right? Like even in our own people, there's a divide with folks that, you know, are lighter Puerto Ricans and then folks that are Afro-Latinos that are, you know, Black and they're Puerto Rican, right? They're Puerto Rican and they're more melanated. And then there's also the divide in Puerto Rico with people that don't speak Spanish and people that speak Spanish or people that live and have stayed on the island and then people that were born in, you know, the U.S. but have Puerto Rican lineage, like the diaspora versus like the folks that live on the island. And and then there is also a beef with folks that were born and raised on the island and then left yes. to the U.S. So like there is, there is a divide within our people that I also want to help bridge because when we are divided in this way, we are going to be oppressed more because there's more power there in that division. Absolutely. So let's talk about your book, uh, The Pain We Carry, right? So when you got into the idea of, of writing the book, what made you come to that title? Because I think it's a very powerful title. It was definitely with the help of my publisher, I have to say. They've just been super supportive of my work, which is like really uncommon. So I feel really fortunate that my publisher was really supportive. But my book first was supposed to be just a book about complex PTSD, generally speaking. Yes. But then my publisher said, write the book from your heart. Like when you envision the book from your heart, what is that book? I said, it's not just complex PTSD. It's really how it is uniquely expressed in folks of the globe majority, in people of color. And then she said, write that book. I mean, I still channel some of the things that I've learned from psychoanalysis, but I think for me more, it's been, I've really leaned more toward like ancestral healing now, the more that I learn. And then also internal family systems. Like that's been more of like my thing while also having a foundation in psychoanalysis. So I think all those three things have really helped me to just really see and understand so much more within myself and, you know, and within other people. But it wasn't until I was writing and my publisher saw what I was sharing and just, you know, how I was writing the book. Cause I did, we didn't want it to be very heady. We wanted it to be like where anyone can pick up the book and then just be like, Oh, I get this. And, and, you know, like if they can read it, I want it to be as right, you want, as you possible. Want people to relate. Exactly. And then the people read it and then they say, I don't even understand this. Cause it's like so much psychobabble. So I don't want them to have yeah. that experience. So I tried, I made it as accessible as I, as possible. But then my publisher said, you know, like this feels like the way that you're writing is pretty poetic. And so we want to really have a title that that shows that poetry, that that flow. And so then we came up with the pain we carry and it was perfect. It was so perfect because that was exactly what I wanted to share. It's not that we are the pain. We are carrying pain, but we are not the trauma that has happened to us. We carry it. Yeah. And, and a lot of that comes into like we were talking about before, it, it's, it kind of turns into the person that we are. So, you know, we use words like, you know, I could be a dick sometimes, but there's could be some pain behind there. I can act like a dick. Right? Yes. yes. <laughs> I could act like a dick sometimes. Yeah. You know, but, you know, let, let's peel back the layer on that and try to, you know, try to understand why is one being hence such a dick? 
You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> what I really find great about your books, a lot of people don't know that there's actually different forms of PTSD. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a layman kind of like a rundown of what kind of PTSD? Like, is there, is it a spectrum? Is it more of like certified, like attention deficit disorder and mm-hmm. a, a hyperactive disorder? So like, you know, it's like mm-hmm. they kind of get lumped in together, but they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think depending on who you speak to, you're going to get different answers. I know I've heard people, you know, say chronic trauma or, you know, attachment trauma, developmental trauma, like there's just different understanding. How I see it is we have, at least in terms of post-traumatic stress, we have PTSD and we have CPTSD. And what's different about them is that with PTSD, we have a traumatic experience. A lot of the time, it's one like single incident, traumatic lived experience that happens. Uh, If we get into a car accident, right, or some sort of that can cause trauma. And then, you know, we need to go through healing for that, whether it's EMDR or something just to go through trying to eliminate the sensory triggers that we get. So like the smell or the sound, right? And so you see this a lot. That's that's usually PTSD is usually seen as like a single incident kind of trauma or even that it's happened multiple times where complex post-traumatic stress comes in and where it differs is that complex post-traumatic stress is exposure, ongoing exposure to toxic stress or traumatic experiences that are ongoing. They happen over time, almost like when you think of when was the first time that you felt powerless and really horrified and that you have like. I don't know. I, I feel like I've always felt like that, right? So it's like almost like post-traumatic stress, but you don't really have a grasp on like kind of why you have it. Like you have an idea, but it's not as like when I was 13, my brother died. That's it. Right, right. This is like, there are so many events that so they're all blurred together. Like when you think of, I was hit as a kid. Right. Multiple times. If you ask how many, like, can you go to that time when you were hit? I don't know. There's like so many. There's so many I don't even remember anymore, right? Like that. So when we think about that, and that's what folks call like, you know, developmental trauma, it's the trauma that kids are exposed to as children, that then creates attachment wounds or attachment ruptures. And and what that is, is really just like your, your sense of safety with your parents or your caregivers and how close you feel and how safe you feel. And then your ability to learn how to regulate your own emotions and energy based on what you see them doing, right? So you talked earlier about when we grow up in environments where they're shouting and, and that's definitely the environment that I grew up in, I'm going to shout yes. <laughs> when I, I'm, I'm gonna mad. Scream. Yeah. I'm going to get upset and I'm going to be loud because it's kind of all I know. That's yeah, that's a template I was giving. Right. And then we can work towards change. Right. And so that is what complex trauma is with the added that now there are also emotional triggers. So it's not just sensory triggers. Now there are emotional triggers. So for example, if you've heard growing up the words that say you're too much, you're too much as a kid. Now you're in a relationship with someone or in a friendship, whatever. And that person says, you are needy. You are too much. That's going to activate you. And it's going to bring you back to all those memories, right? That, That word or that phrase is activating in the same way that you mentioned earlier, spick. That's an oppressive racist slur. 
right? That is going to be activating. It's beyond something. Now it's the word and the phrase that it's used that's really activating us. And it's activating childhood wounds. It's activating the parts of us that feel othered. It's activating racial wounds and racial trauma. It's activating all of that. And that is how I understand to be complex trauma. It's not just a, a single incident. It is things that continue to happen. The exposure to cultural trauma and how it's impacted us. It's exposure to intergenerational trauma, that, that wounding that happens throughout the generations that we also internalize. It's the microaggressions, the racial trauma. It's all of that packaged as a perfect storm. I've always told people the mind is so powerful that if you joke about being a piece of shit and, you know, if you tell yourself you're a piece of shit enough, as sooner or later, your brain's actually going to believe you're a piece of shit. Yes, it is so true. It you know, is it's so like, true. oh, I'm so lazy. Like, I'm depressed. And like, you know, like, yep. you know, you could make yourself depressed. It's not that hard. Once you keep trying to tell yourself that, oh, I'm this kind of sad figure, your brain could be tricked into be like, oh, you want to be sad? Like, I thought we were sad for real. Yeah. The messages that you tell yourself are going to be really, really important in the same way that the messages you also hear from other people about you are also going to be really important. Because if people are telling you you're a shitty ass person, you're going to internalize that. And that's going to become your voice. That's going to become your internal voice. I Maybe I am a shitty person. Maybe yeah. I am a shitty person. And that's where you kind of, like we said, I think people should be more comfortable with confrontation. The more we learn about like confrontation, the word confrontation gets a very like negative connotation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to confront someone can be a very liberating thing. We're starting to see more and more people confronting people in the news, confronting yeah. people in politics, confronting people on just like a personal and social level, you know, yeah. in a time where we communicate through phones a lot and, and through likes and DMs and all this other stuff, I commend people that can confront others Yeah, yeah. where they're actually comfortable. And a lot of those times, those people are called dicks. But yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. It takes a lot of heart to confront someone. It does. When I've been in my own fragility, I've been like, oh my God, they hurt my feelings, right? Like, <laughs> oh, no, yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm a bed crier for sure. When we shift that paradigm to see someone's confronting is really a calling in hmm. and they're coming toward us from a place of like, I believe that you can handle this and I love you enough to give you this gift of a calling. I think that that shifts things. When I'm with you know, friends, I, I often tell my friends, like, give me feedback. Because if you love me, you want me to do better. And mm -hmm. if I'm hurting you, or if I'm saying something, I want to know so that I can take again, that accountability for myself, and I can do better. And I can offer repair. I don't want you holding this. Give me that feedback. Because that's what love does. Love is active, right? Love is a verb. Love says, hey, this hurt me. So I, I love you enough now, to confront. I love you enough. And I believe that you can hold this. Yeah. Right. I believe that you can hold this. And we'll that for me, right. When I shifted my paradigm to see me being confronted and called in as, a, as coming from a place of believing in me and a, from a place of love and calling in, not like you're a fucked up person and you're so shameful. You should be ashamed of yourself. Right. That lands so much better. That's, oh man, you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> Only from all the mistakes that I've made. <laughs> Only from the mistakes I've made. No, no, listen, you and me both. You and me both. The last question I wanted, I wanted to talk about is social media, how it affects the way people think about themselves 
we all know that it could have a negative impact. It could have a positive impact. Right. You see more and more psychiatrists, therapists, doctors, anybody in the medical field. It's like they almost long for like a social media imprint and they're looking for a social media presence because that's just how things are just digested now. Is it kind of hard for you to like be on Instagram and like trying to like be the light for somebody, for lack of a better word? And you're like, this is just toxic as fuck. I have my mixed feelings. I've been on Instagram for since 2019. And then I took a pause when the, when, you know, the pandemic hit in 2020. And then, you know, my relationship with Instagram has been different since. I think I'm more on it now since I, my book came out and I'm using Instagram as a marketing thing. But I think Instagram reminds me a little bit. I appreciate it. I appreciate the the community that I'm building on it. And I appreciate so much about social media. And I feel like at the same time, when the, the pendulum swings the other direction of like, and sometimes I feel like I can't stand it. Algorithm aside, where you have to be just posting all the time. I'm like, who has the time to do this? Like I have a job, I have a family, I'm doing shit with my, like, I don't understand. Not just the algorithm piece, but then it's like, sometimes people steal your content. It becomes also like really clickish, and I'm not the person that likes clicks. I've just never been that person. The same way. So that feels really. That's the for me. My experience has been just the downside of Instagram. I love connecting with people I wouldn't have connected with otherwise, and I think it also has its issues. If you know, especially if we're comparing ourselves to other people, right? If we're like, damn, yo, I should have. Let me let me write this post right now before someone else writes it and they're gonna feel my idea, right? Like yeah. that. Like now I feel like when I I'm making a commitment to myself to do everything that I do from a place of heart. If I can't find a heart in doing it, I'm not gonna do it because that's just doesn't feel good to me. It's just it's OD otherwise. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it don't. You know what I mean? It's just it's just too much. And the last question I ask, it's a very baseline, but I like to just see where people are at during the day is are you happy so far today? Am I happy so far today? I love that question. Yes, I'm content. I am content. It's a good word. Another word yeah. that gets a bad connotation. Mm-hmm. And it's enough, right? It's enough. it's enough. It's enough. And I also feel like it's a blessing to be bored sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Think about that. I long for oh, boredom Lord. now. Like, <laughs> I used to avoid boredom. boredom. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. Oh, I'm yeah. so bored. Then let, we'll figure out. You could take a plethora of of things that you could do. Yeah. Think about. Yeah, that. boredom is a reflect. Blessing. You have boredom can create space if we're open to it to reflect on things that we could improve on. Right? Yeah. It's just like there's like a, <laughs> it's just a beautiful fucking thing to be bored. I hate when people say they're bored. I'm like, dude, you're so lucky then. Yeah. Be bored. It's it's the most beautiful concept in the world if you really break it down to its sincerest form and being content is a beautiful thing can i ask you then is it okay if i ask you are you happy i am happy today thank you for asking that i think you might be the first or second person that's maybe asked me that that Mm. so that's why i'm so used to not getting it asked back that i went like right Mm. into I had a great conversation with a friend of mine that I haven't spoken to in a while. And it kind of like pre-launched my day. Mm. So it was nice. It was nice. I'm I'm happy today. I'm happy that they're doing well in their life. And it was nice to hear from them. So it was, uh, it's something. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice. It's small human interaction can go a long way. 
we have no excuse to kind of not be in contact with people now. Mm-hmm. It's almost so easy that it's a burden to be in contact with people so much. And hence why I enjoy boredom. I fight for my boredom. To kind of have that moment in your mind where my mind is so like bored right now that it's actually asking, begging to be stimulated. So like when I have those kind of moments where my mind is like really like slowing down, I'm like, that's why I enjoy it so much. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah. And you know, when my fiance gets home and my dogs are asleep and she's asleep, you know, I'm a comedian, I travel, I do stand up. So it's when I have like those moments of peace, I'm like, this is this is like the American dream to me. Mm. To be content, like you said. I really feel that a lot of people have a hard time going out of their way to be happy now. Mm. We embrace sadness more than we embrace happiness. Now that I'm getting older, right? And I have a knee that like is kind of weird just from like playing sports and stuff. You know, I used to always be afraid like, oh, like my knee's going to hurt now, like all the time. Mm. Now, like when it doesn't hurt, like I'm like, oh, this is awesome. My knee doesn't hurt. And I kind of think of that the same way with like my mental health. It's like if you tore your ACL, you get it fixed, right? as humans i feel we're our own worst enemy because we take a lot of stuff internalize it don't use it the right way thank you so much for asking i appreciate it and also to your point of just embracing joy too i think that's just really important and and that's part of you talk about that 45 percent, right that that when we're healing i think we also have to get comfortable with embracing our joy too oh yeah that was like scary 100%. that was like one of the biggest problems i had i would just wake up every day and focus on the shit that sucks you know and it's like listen like now i'm more willing to face shit that sucks you know what i mean like have like you know more of an honest conversation with myself but like i'm just in a situation where i'll sit at home and be now like the questions i ask myself is not like what's the meaning of life like what's like all this stuff i'm like how does this tv work it's the smaller things in life that amaze me more than like the big things like every time I look at a plane, I'm like, I'll never fucking get it. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Yes, yes, yes. You no, know, I'm just trying to be a simpler consumer mm. when it comes to living life. Simple things, you know? I love that. And that, that, I love are, that. that are like true to me. You know what I mean? Like I'm getting married in two months. Congratulations. Very much. You know, like those are simple things. Like not everybody agrees with getting married. I'm, I hear you. I feel you. I like getting married. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. Yeah. You know? And then it's like, it's a, there's always the negative thing. You never hear the positives marriage. You never hear it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh man, it's like, oh, you got to get a prenup or like, you got to do this. Like what happens if this happens? I'm like, well, how come nobody ever says, yo, what happens if you have a kid and just live an awesome life? Yeah. No one ever says that. Cause it's not sexy. And it's, it's coming from a place of trauma. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, like, damn, dude, you want to get married? Like, why don't you just chill? I'm just like, dude, you got to let people live their lives. Mm-hmm. Let people live their lives. And everybody always talks about the bad endings. Nobody embraces the, 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 the oh. life. And listen, as somebody who's been locked in an asylum, you know, I'll never forget when the, I said insane asylum in the waiting room, he goes, we don't call it that here. Ooh. And I said, oh, sorry. And I was like, he was like, it's psych. You're going to the psych. I was like, oh, okay. And then I kind of realized, like, that's kind of negative thinking, too. Yeah. It's it's pathologizing that, right? Yeah. You're saying that you're insane. Yeah. I said, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm going to the insane asylum. Like, I said it out loud. Like, look at my life. 
you know, because I'm Puerto Rican and Italian. It's drama's not far. Oh, <laughs> we're, we're all Oscar winning actors, you know, Puerto Ricans, Puerto Ricans and Italians. You know what I mean? So, and I'm, I was looking up and going, I can't believe I'm going in the insane asylum. Like, woe is me. And, and I remember the doctor kind of was like, first of all, we don't call it that here. It's mm. just, you're going to the psych unit and you're going to get better. That's why you're here. Oof. So, you know, just like kind of that one conversation that I had, I said, you got to start looking at things a little bit differently because yeah. it's too short. Yeah. And just because you have to go to the site doesn't mean that you're defective. It means that you're struggling with something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm blessed to help. And I talked to them. I said, I remember talking to this like, dude, you're here. Like, you're blessed enough to be here. Mm. I feel like trauma can be a good thing and a bad thing at the same time sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's sometimes that's kind of find that balance, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, we don't want to glorify trauma, and we can also grow around it. Yeah, and at the varying degrees for some people, it it creates the I don't want to say resilience because I know that word is tiring and old. Depending on what we do with it, it can inform oh, yeah. how we grow from it. I look at like LeBron James, right? People could like say whatever they want about him, like, oh, like he's corny or tacky or whatever. I'm like, if you really think about where this kid, no father, his mom's like 15, you know, and, and he, from Akron, Ohio, right? Most of his friends never made it. Mm. And this guy makes a billion dollars playing basketball. Like, who cannot be a fan of that story? Mm. Most of the people we look up to in life, we get to enjoy their trauma from an entertainment standpoint. You had to go through this so you could become this, and I get to ingest you now and enjoy mm. it. Again, thank you for letting me vent. That was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for listening to me. But for people that are listening to the show now, where can they find you on the internet? Where can they find your book, The Pain We Carry, and anything else that you want to promote? It's your time. So I'm, I'm thinking... The, about the conversation we just had around social media. It all comes back to the media, baby. <laughs> I think I, I am biggest on Instagram. That's where I'm at the most. I try to avoid the other spaces, but nevertheless, I still have accounts there. But if folks want to find me, I'm available on at Natalie Gutierrez LMFT on Instagram. And that is my same handle for TikTok, Natalie Gutierrez LMFT. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who's listening. Thank you you to everyone at Off the Cuff. Follow at 101OTC on Instagram. And we will see you guys next week. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate in it. Entertainment. Ah!